You're listening to Outside the Chamber, and I'm your host, Eleanor Sturko, the member of BC's Legislative Assembly for Surrey South, here in beautiful Surrey, British Columbia. There are a ton of challenges we're facing in BC today, from the unbelievably high cost of living to the current healthcare crisis and beyond. British Columbians have a lot to talk about. That's why my team and I have decided to create a podcast that goes beyond the legislative chamber and has real discussions about the issues facing our province. All right, on this episode of Outside the Chamber, my guest is Upkar Tatley, and Upkar is the Chief Technology Officer at Oxus Machine Works Incorporated, where he oversees the development of healthcare innovations and experimental development biotech projects related to the overdose crisis, homelessness, food security, and mental health. Apkar is also the Executive Director of Engaged Communities Canada Society, which works to address systemic gaps existing for underserved communities across British Columbia's lower mainland region. This year, 2023, Upcar was also the recipient of an award presented by BC Achievement, an independent foundation that honors excellence and inspires achievement throughout the province, recognizing extraordinary British Columbians who build better, stronger, and more resilient communities. Obviously, Upcar has a wealth of knowledge, experience, and passion surrounding the challenges of public health, including homelessness and addiction. And that is why I am very pleased to welcome Upcar to the studio today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful studio. It is. That's an extraordinary um, introduction, actually. You know, I've known you outside of um, my MLA's office for uh, more than a year. And just even reading the things that you do, this isn't even a quarter Mm -hmm. of the things that you've been doing for the community, honestly. Um, I'm so happy to know you, but also happy to have you to have this, what I hope will be an interesting discussion. So can you tell me a little bit about how did you get involved with public health? Uh, probably inadvertently, it wasn't really what I intended to do. My background, microbiology, immunology, and I was working in a lab for many, many years, um, at the Michael Smith lab at UBC. Um, and during that tenure of working there, I was pulled into side projects all the time. Uh, whether it was people I knew, people I'd gone to school with, uh, just to address some things that they couldn't do. So if they're working at the grassroots level, um, they needed data or they need to look at the materials or the, the challenges in a different way through perhaps a scientific lens. And recognizing that perhaps there was a niche there, um, that's really when I embarked on whatever iteration this is now. But at the same time, um, I was also working in community. Uh, It was quite simply providing sports for kids with no barriers to access. Because that was the biggest challenge I saw back then is that even sports was being commodified. I mean, who can afford, like even now, like you you put on hockey skates once and you're looking at $2,000 bill minimum just to play hockey for a little kid. It's certainly, like people get priced out of it. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of people do, right? And so you think about how hard that is for everybody. And then you look at marginalized communities, people who have financial challenges or new newcomers to Canada. And they're definitely not going to be enrolling their kids in programs. And then we all know the iteration. What happens then is that uh, those kids do potentially develop challenges. They, they're not settled. They, they don't have access to social outlets and community. So anyways, we started delivering free programmings, free sports. Um, and when you do that, you tend to draw a lot of people because it's free. Yeah. Um, well, it's free and it's fun and yeah. it's engaging. 
you yeah. know. And I, but it's you know when you're telling the story when you're talking about being in a lab, mm-hmm. and I picture you like you know science guy there, you're a microscope <laughs> man. But you know when I now I know you outside, and I've never yeah. known you to be in the lab. I've yeah. always seen you with engaged communities yeah. out with um, the cooling centers and you know giving out water and mm-hmm. naloxone and and um, you know different harm prevention things for people in the community. Yeah. Um, so you know, it. How did you go really from this scientific perspective, or do you see them as being combined? It, it, yeah, totally meshed with each other, um, and I think that's probably why um, this version of it looks very different. Yeah, we are actually, and I remember saying this to someone on the team years ago that this is a very different way of delivering both science and community projects. It's never been done, and it's still not being done. Um, it, but it, it's what needs to be done, and that is that we are making sure that community informs our process on the technology side, on the innovation side, on whatever we're doing on, uh, at the company. We're making sure that community not only has input into it, but in fact, they're the ones guiding the process. So when I'm out there, like you said, you know, we're giving out water, we're providing uh, shelter during winter and summer, uh, all the different projects we're doing, that is directly informing the work we do and then ultimately the outputs we deliver in terms of innovation. Um, and, and part of the, one of the projects, really cool ones we're involved in now is one of the local universities, is to demonstrate how this is how all tech companies in the future should be working. It should never be an afterthought that, oh, you know, shoot, we got to make sure that community's on board. The actual first step should be with community and that's really what we're trying to prove. So what, can you give me an example of technology that's being employed now, mm-hmm. um, maybe you know, on the street helping people who are unhoused or marginalized yeah. um, addictions um, treatment that has been sort of informed at the street level and then helping um, yeah. develop that scientific process. Well, a really good example of this whole thing that I'm talking about is um, if we look at migrant labor communities, uh, a lot of them are Hispanic, uh, they're here in British Columbia, and they'll fr- be from the Okanagan all the way down to the Fraser Valley out in Delta and Latner as well. Um, we were working alongside a organization in the downtown east side called Watari. They, they help uh, migrant labor communities. But we got on board to help them with some of their health needs, emerging health needs. Uh, so when the floods happened, for example, in 2021, we were the ones who were able to go there and provide food. Uh, we provided health supplies. Uh, we were fortunate that we had a team member who spoke Spanish as well. And so it was really, really great way of delivering vital needs that they had. But through that work, we quickly identified that people needed much more. And one of the things that came up in conversation was that uh, health needs included access to naloxone. They were facing challenges around addiction. Recovery and treatment was the furthest thing from their mind. Uh, They were not a community group that the wider community or agencies and stakeholders were even looking at to provide assistance to. Um, One of the biggest challenges they had was what are their labor rights? And so we took all of that and put it into the hopper back at at work. And we actually delivered a platform, a technology platform that allows people to access uh, understanding of what labor laws are, what employment standards are here in British Columbia, and done so in Spanish so that they too can uh, be empowered. And that's really how we're trying to demonstrate that technology needs to be. 
Oh, that's, yeah, really enmeshed. And, yeah. uh, you know, I had a conversation, which is on another episode um, of Outside the Chamber, with Ron Brar, who is mm. the CEO of um, Evergreen Herbs, mm-hmm. talking about food security. And, and one of the things um, really important to food security is that um, foreign labor market, having the individuals here in British Columbia who can help uh, work on farms and do some of the labor Absolutely. that we have a shortage in. And so I can see how even the technology that you're doing, <clears throat> pardon me, is really important really to our food security. It's all so interrelated. Yeah. Um, it's you know, really it's, fascinating. It's, yeah. You know, one of the things I've, uh, I've said a lot, <laughs> you know, I'm also the president at Diversity. It's a settlement agency, a very, very large one. We do fantastic work and that's a bias, of course, but we do. Um, and one of the things is that, you know, and I've shared this very openly, is that if we as British Columbians are benefiting so greatly from, you know, we, we often talk about, oh, diversity. We talk about all these multiple communities and all the wonderful things they're bringing in and all the benefits. And we mentioned work, uh, labor, and assistance that way, but also contributing to our cultural fabric. Um, then what are we doing to make sure that we're holding up our end of the bargain, both in terms of health care, in terms of social needs, socioeconomic needs, housing needs? So there's a considerable amount of work that needs to be done that perhaps isn't quite there yet. And we often forget that part of the equation. We often focus on, well, you know, wonderful, they're coming in, we're getting all this stuff done, but you know, we gotta hold up our end of it too. No, that's a good point. You know, getting back to some of the work that you're doing with engaged communities, you Mm -hmm. know, um, I think that there's not one part of um, British Columbia right now that I can think of that isn't touched by the addictions crisis, um, housing crisis, we have a lot of unhoused people, and even here in South Surrey and White Rock where people often think of our area as being more affluent, Mm -hmm. um, being a place where, you know, we might not have as great of an issue with some of these um, challenges that BC is facing, but from your perspective, what are you seeing out in the street on our area? Well, I mean, okay, well, just to touch on what you said there, that perception that people have, and I shared this with one of the uh, local councils and multiple politicians in the past too, is that this right now, I mean, it's, it's easy to look down on the situation and be like, oh my God, it's getting out of hand, it's getting really bad. But on the peninsula for sure, there's a wonderful opportunity to get things right. We, we're in that place right now. Um, there are places, and I've been to, I'm sure you have, and many listeners have too, uh, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, uh, Austin, um, where there's huge, huge challenges. And, and I guarantee a lot of those places, if they could go back 10 years or, or be where we're at right now, they would do things much differently. They would lay down the foundational uh, structures, infrastructure, or social programming to make sure they don't end up where they're at now. Now it's kind of, it, it's too, you know, the dams burst. It's like you can't plug those holes. So what does that look like, though? What is the kind of infrastructure that we need to do now, What, in your opinion? What is it that, particularly yeah. here on the peninsula, because... You know, from my perspective, both as um, you know, former police officer, I did mm-hmm. police here in Surrey. Um, I've been to other places that are, I would say, have a deeper impact and a more historic impact, like the downtown east side. Yeah. I've I've made observations in a lot of communities. So, what is yeah. the infrastructure we need to make sure we're not the next tenderloin? Yeah. Well, the knee-jerk reaction is housing, and but I. 
I think we know that that's not the be all and end all. Yes, it's, it's part of the equation for sure. We need to provide housing, we need to provide long-term housing. But in order to get people ready for that, we need those ter those initial stages of housing, shelters. But even before that, we have to make sure that people are provided these immediate emerging needs that they have, those emergency needs. So oftentimes, for example, when we're working with people, they have such huge uh, impacts to their physical well-being um, that we're just spending considerable amount of time stabilizing an individual, making sure that their wounds are taken care of, making sure that any kind of uh, injuries are taken care of, that, that they're seeing nurses and doctors, they're going in for tests. So once you have that stability, and once you have that infrastructure to allow for that to happen, so whether that's a shelter, whether it's some kind of permanent space or some kind of mobile health unit, which we also operate, um, then you can start to look at, okay, is there a brick and mortar response to this? to provide people with housing stability. Is there counseling? That's really important because the vast majority of people are dealing with huge amounts of mental health challenges. And only then can you start to look at, okay, well, what does addictions really look like for this individual? Does it involve treatment and recovery? And how can we get more of these spaces? And can they not be businesses? Can we just make sure that treatment and addiction options are available to everybody when they need them, where they need them, and it's not cost prohibitive? So we can really start to do a full circle and make sure that people aren't uh, falling back into the path of being on the streets all the time. It, it is, you know, it's taken us a long time to get to where we're at now, and it's going to take just as long, if not longer, to climb out of this. It's going to take a lot of work and effort. And I think people need to be ready for that. So what do you think then is like among the biggest challenges right now that you're facing to providing services in the community? Well, again, knee-jerk reaction would be that funding. Yeah, funding for sure, making sure that, you know, that the organizations, stakeholders and agencies that are set up to do this work receive the funding. That's a key part. So where's the but it's not. Is it's it coming from government mostly, or are you guys receiving community support? How are you? Like, well, how we is, do. We do a, the way we do it is very different. Um, there is some government support, but the vast majority of heavy lifting is done in kind through volunteers, through professionals who have experience who are genuinely passionate about helping people. They don't care if they get paid or not. They really want to make sure that their community is healthy and strong for years to come. So there's a lot of kind souls that have put in in-kind efforts to make sure that we can do the work we're doing. Uh, the mobile health unit, for example, is a, it's a perfect case study of this. I mean, we knew the work needed to be done. We knew that people needed access to healthcare in remote areas and oftentimes in bushes or places that, you know, normally, I mean, and, and they're not going to a, a hospital for whatever reason, they're just not going to a hospital, but we need to deliver healthcare. Um, so before we could get any support and funding, we delivered it. So it was literally converting something. You had to prove it. Before, I had to yeah. prove it, yeah. yeah. So it was, you know, retrofitting a vehicle that I had, getting nurses and doctors that I had relationships with, getting them on board, getting our volunteers together, already having the communities identified, having relationships with us, and then delivering the model. So that's really what it took. And now we're fortunate that the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation is now supporting it. That's awesome. So the next iteration of this is going to be vastly different than the pilot that we first ran. So are, you know, are there other agencies that you know of doing the mobile health unit as well? Um, I think there are in, in Vancouver. Uh, there is 
one in Vancouver, and I believe in Prince George as well. Um, they they take a different perspective uh, in that they are, and we, we we also lead with harm reduction, but that's really what those things are doing are, is that's really all they're doing. They're providing harm reduction, uh, safe supply, the, some version of safe supply to individuals. Uh, our focus, however, is that first part I was talking about is making sure that people have health care, making sure their wounds are looked at, making sure that, you know, if they need tests, they're getting requisitions from a doctor, they're having counselors, we have counselors on site. I can't tell you how, I mean, if you've ever heard me on traditional radio, yeah. you've probably heard me talking about experiences as a police officer seeing tremendous wounds. And, oh, you know, yeah. and one of my things that led me to run for public office was mm -hmm. seeing the suffering of people who have people wouldn't even believe um, what yeah. people are suffering with out there. So, yeah. I mean, that's very meaningful to me. I hope that people mm -hmm. listening can really appreciate that the the medical cases also that you must be dealing with with your team Huge. are not your, it's not like a cut no. um, that you might need a stitch for. These are people who, um, through the illness that they're currently suffering, are yeah. also suffering from some tremendous wounds that they may not themselves realize the seriousness yeah. of. So, I mean, it's great work that you guys are doing. I, I mean, it's no surprise to me that you were awarded a community award for this kind of effort. So, you know, what was that like? Can you tell me a bit about what what's it like then to be honored by the province, really, yeah. for, for the work that you're doing? Yeah. No, it, it, look, uh, I have a hard time talking about this stuff. Because it, you're it, a humble guy, no, but no. this is awesome work, honestly. <laughs> it, it's, it, it was fantastic. It was really good. Um, but I think the greatest thing was uh, there was an opportunity to meet other people who've done amazing work. And I think oftentimes when you're doing any kind of work that is hopefully intended to help community, help British Columbia, help your province, um, there is a siloing that happens and you know you can get so mired in it you know you were talking about wounds and you're constantly looking at wounds and you're trying to get doctors and nurses and, and the health authority working with partners to work on those things you can get lost in that and so when you lift your head up and you see oh there's other people doing wonderful work there's people in the in the Kootenays doing work on the watershed there's people doing mental health work there's people even using the medium of film to highlight challenges to specific communities so I think in that regard the honor was great because it really gave me a moment to pause and reflect on all the other amazing things that are happening but what that also does it bolsters you for continuing that work. It refills your cup. It does. 100%. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, so. and you know, I guess in those days, and I think, you know, I don't want to speak for British Columbians, mm -hmm. but I think that, you know, we all sometimes have those days where it seems like if you spend any time on Twitter anyway, that there's more <laughs> bad than good. But the reality is, is that that's actually not a real world. Yeah. The real world is way more full of good people. And when you see these award yeah. presentations and you see these honors yeah. that are given in British Columbia and the work that people are doing, and uh, many times without government support, exactly. um, yeah. it's just philanthropy, like yeah. straight up kindness, um, that you, you do recognize that there is tons of tremendously positive stuff happening in the province. Yeah, that's probably why it's a good, re a good excuse to stay off Twitter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, if you needed one. Um, you know, but now to bring the mood down again, I want yeah. to talk about something that's a bit more complex. Yeah. And that is, and, and I think that you probably have a pretty good perspective from that frontline service provider point of view. And mm -hmm. that's the, the conflict that there is between um, unhoused 
and addictions and our business community. You know, I'm hearing uh, more and more um, from constituents and from people really across the province about increases in theft, yeah. violence, vandalism. Um, you know, I heard from one major pharmacy group that just 80 stores lost $10 million in shrinkage yeah. for a year. That's yeah. a lot of money. And yeah. that ultimately gets passed on to uh, consumers. Yeah. You know, so how can we deal with the conflict? Like, yes, we have people who are sick, they're ill, they may have mental health issues or other circumstances. But it has become somewhat of a of a conflict. Yeah, the you know it's a fallacy to say that number one that this isn't happening that you know one thing doesn't equate to another. Data proves it. You know crime stats prove it. Um, I can prove it at the grassroots level that this is indeed happening. There is a challenge around uh, aggression, violence, theft, um, particularly to this community. Now, mind you, not all people who use shelters are there because they're you know, either addicted or they're facing homelessness. Our homelessness is a challenge, but we have numerous people who are using our shelter services, those who are employed. Uh, there's single mothers, there's people leaving hospitals. But of that subset population, yes, theft is a, is, is a huge challenge. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, you have businesses who are struggling and, you know, making ends meet, and they're also stepping up to support the work we're doing. They're, those are very same businesses that will have a window broken in that will actually show up at our shelter and say, hey, you know, we want to contribute warm supplies to make sure that people... So it, it, it's amazing to see that dynamic. Um, what I've always kind of viewed this as is this really speaks to why, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is why we need the infrastructure and support to hopefully prevent this from happening. The vast majority of people who would do theft and we would encounter them eventually and you know understand that this is what they've done, you know, when you speak to them, you realize it really comes from a sense of not having, not having a home, not having anything. So what those thefts equate to them is safety and security because they can probably flip it for something, go chop it up and do whatever, right. get it's some cash. Right, it's an economy of survival. Yeah, that's yeah. all it is. So if we can really look at that, that entire process I was talking about, making sure that those supports are there for individuals, but not just leaving it at the supports, oh, you know, build this and they will come. That's not going to do it, right? You have to make sure that, you know, whatever that looks like, the harm reduction pathway, the treatment addiction, all those places, pieces are there. That's ultimately what's going to reduce uh, the, the thefts and challenges of businesses. Right. Are so we're talking about, you know, not adding more police to the top, yeah. but addressing the underlying causes. But of policing is very important. Um, Absolutely. You know, I couldn't I, agree with you more, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as you know, but at the same time, you know, yeah. having that perspective, as, yeah. as I know that you do as well, yeah. that um, you can arrest someone, yeah. but when they're released again, if their circumstance didn't change, they're going to likely continue on the same right. pathway that they had been prior to their arrest. Absolutely. And so, you know, um, there's a lot of stigma surrounding these issues yeah. too. And, you know, it's hard because, you know, um, from my perspective as MLA, I, I get, um, I, I understand the perspective of both. You mm -hmm. know, like I said earlier, I mentioned the phrase sort of like the, the, um, the crimes of their survival. They're, yeah. you know, they're trying to find security in, yeah. in stealing in hostile world, yeah. Yeah, Exactly. It's very but then from the perspective of business, I mean, 80 million uh, or 80 stores with $10 million worth of shrinkage mm -hmm. is a lot for companies that are trying to deal with rising costs of inflation. And, you know, so it, sometimes it seems at odds, yeah. but at the same time, 
both are seeking to sort of address that underlying issue. But there's a stigma as well. Um, So I want to talk about that stigma. Um, You know, what do you think the stigma is surrounding um, mental health and addiction? What What is stigma when we talk about that? Well, stigma is oftentimes just unfair perspective of a community or a group. That's, that's, you know, it's unwarranted, it's, it's based on negative stereotypes, and then it equates to stigma. And, you know, racialized communities, for example, we have dealt with and continue to deal with it for, you know, in abundance for many years, as many other communities do too. And what that equates to, sadly, sometimes is grim statistics. Uh, one of the things around addictions is the horrible circumstance of the number of South Asian men between the ages of uh, middle age who were dying of overdose. And that was overlooked for many, many years. Um, and there was many reasons behind it. Uh, you know, lack of services, lack of you know, understanding of the challenge itself, no research being done. Um, but one of the big th- things within the community, and still is, and one of the barriers that has to be broken down is stigma, is is just acknowledging that this challenge even exists within a community. So this isn't something that's coming from outside, ported in. This is actually within a community. The amount of stigma is so potent that it's actually equating to a huge number of deaths. There's a 288% increase in the number of people, South Asian men who died between uh, when their chief medical health officer's report was released in 2018. That's a huge number. And so our work, a significant portion of it, is to reduce stigma. One of the technology platforms, kind of bring it back to technology, um, was actually developed, deployed, with the sole intention of informing the, the wider community around addictions, how to respond, what an overdose looks like, um, but it wasn't directed at the person who was using the substance. It was directed at the wider community, not only to empower them, but to also promote that conversation around this horrible, horrible crisis that we're in. So so to reduce the stigma. Well, and in our health authority, so we're in the Fraser Health Authority. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the largest percentage of people that are succumbing to overdose mm-hmm. are people in our South Asian community, people yeah. who um, are not homeless. Mm-hmm. They're living in, in homes, most of them employed. So, you know, do you think that you know, the uptake on, on acceptance and getting that word out and are, are things starting to change? Are we bringing that message around and what more could we do? Uh, you know, I, I want to say yes. I want to say yes, it's working. Um, we're at the very, very infancy of this whole movement. Number one, it was just acknowledging it was a challenge, took many years. Number two, then figuring out, okay, well, what do we do about it? Number three, and that's kind of where we're at now, is finally delivering resources around it, both within the health authority. Uh, they're doing great work. Uh, they, they, you know, uh, SAHI, one of their organized uh, sub-departments, is doing some great work. Uh, there's stakeholder agencies that are out there doing outreach. So, so it's starting, the trickle is starting to happen. But like I was saying before, it's taken us so long to get to this. And, and that so long pathway includes many things, mental health, stigma, uh, uh, chauvinism, uh, you know, all these kind of things. It, it's all intertwined to r- result in this horrible mess we're in. And it's going to take that considerable amount of effort to, you know, untangle all this and also deliver a response so we can start to see an impact. Our statistics are horrible. I mean, we, I, I just, 
talked about it a week ago, every time that the statistics on overdose are released, uh, we know that there's a challenge. We know it's getting worse. And we also know that there's mitigating uh, circumstances and variables that contribute to it. In 2021, when the floods happened back in my hometown in, in the interior, we saw a huge uptick in the number of overdoses there. So we actually took our remote health unit and started to deliver a response there. Um, so there's a lot of challenges. Uh, prevention is a big key, and I talk to people about that all the time, is that you know, we focus so much on uh, addictions, recovery, treatment, harm reduction. But when you actually work at the grassroots level and you talk to people, we know that tremendous amount of work needs to be done in prevention at youth. Absolutely. That's one of the things actually from this office that I'm, I'm a very strong advocate for is uh, prevention yeah. and education as a form of safety. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of those things too where, you know, talking about, for example, safe supply, talking about um, harm reduction, it's really sensitive um, and there's a tendency for people to want to pit things like treatment against harm reduction when mm -hmm. really um, they work together. They do. Um, yeah. You know, and when we talk, think about a four pillars, you know, the um, enforcement, education, prevention, yeah. um, harm reduction, uh, all these treatment and recovery, they all have to work together or else it's neither, none of them can be successful. Um, well, within that subset population that is dealing with challenges of homeless or addiction uh, at our shelter sites, 89% uh, of those individuals had some traumatic experience in childhood that ultimately led to the circumstances there. And these are terrible circumstances. And we're talking about, you know, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds that can trace back the origin story of the horrible circumstances they're feeling today in 2023 back to when they were a little child. And it is the most heart-wrenching, traumatic things that are happening to British Columbians, even today. And so we have to do our due diligence to make sure that prevention includes access to mental health, access to counseling, making sure that children have outlets, and going back to what I was saying earlier, making sure that we're not cost prohibitive to families, making sure that children may have different outlets, doesn't have to be sport, could be art, it could be technology, making sure that we're truly empowering and strengthening youth so that when these things happen, they're not resulting in horrible circumstances and ultimately ending up at our doorstep. I don't want to put you on the spot, mm -hmm. but you know, because but I, will. I will, you know me by now. Um, but you know, can you know, we often talk about, um, you know, marginalized communities, homelessness, addiction, and talk about the worst case scenario and the worst of the worst. Do you have any sort of closing anecdote or story that you can tell us about a success that you've seen or something that's made you very proud of, um, related to the work that you've been doing, particularly at the street level? Yeah. Sadly, yeah, I do. And I say sadly because I wish I didn't. I, I wish we didn't. None of us knew these stories. And it's always bittersweet because you often wish that the people didn't have to walk this pathway to get to where they're at today. Uh, but I knew an individual, uh, a white male, uh, born and raised here on the peninsula, uh, now in his mid-40s, um, had horrible things done to him from the age of six onwards. And these things, you know, I was leading a class in public health at SFU and I thought it would be great for them to hear this. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to get theoretical, but then let, let's hear from. And, you know, the stories he shared that day and that he's shared with me privately as well 
were some of the worst things you can ever imagine happening to an individual as a child. And that, that sustained and carried on as a young adult and even as an adult. And so he had a really hard time and you can imagine how hard it would be to get past that. And ultimately the only solution and access he had was to street drugs to combat this emerging uh, well of depression and anxiety and fear of adults, particularly male adults. And that's really how he spent his adulthood. Ultimately, that led to uh, crime, violence, uh, theft, prison stints. He went through numerous cycles of treatment. Uh, harm reduction definitely wasn't working for him. Ultimately, though, what it was is what we were talking about earlier, is taking a step back alongside him and making sure that every procedure was followed. Okay, what are your health challenges? Let's look at those. What are your uh, emerging uh, counseling challenges? Do you have, do you need to talk to a counselor? What are your immediate needs for housing, clothing, getting all those pieces in place and then having some treatment brought in. Now, fast forward to where we're at today from that moment of meeting about five and a half years ago. This is an individual who now runs a repair shop, is not dealing with addictions anymore, is continually seeing counseling, um, is actually dating somebody and can actually put a smile on his face. And that, that one story is wonderful, but it really took a lot of labor intensive effort. And I wish it never had to happen, but it's wonderful that now he's looking at decades and decades of a good life ahead of him. Thank you for sharing that. You know, things can get better. Mm -hmm. And that's, this person's living proof of that. Absolutely. And you're living proof that British Columbians are doing tremendous things. You're an incredible person. I'm so proud to know you, proud to um, have you here in our community and doing so much for the province. So thank you for being here today. Oh, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity. So that was Upcar Tatley um, and a tremendous conversation um, all around about um, many different things. And if you have an idea about things that you would like to discuss here on Outside the Chamber, please feel free to contact me at eleanor.sterko.mla at ledge.bc.ca. Until next time, take care.